You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Because every four years, we are just full of, you know, pride and Puerto Ricanism. But the fact is that we are a colony of the United States, and basically, we're not ruled by the United States because we have our own governor, but we have federal aid, we have Medicaid, we pay Social Security, we, we are benefit from a lot of funding from the U.S. government, which keeps us not being a third world country. Um, but yet we have this sports identity. So it uh, sure does create conf confusion, you know, and uh, cultural identity issues for people like myself. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week, Gigi Fernandez, Tennis Hall of Famer, winner of 17 majors in doubles, mother, wife, tri-state area region. We'll be talking to her about a lot of things, not least Monica Puig's gold medal. Gigi is from Puerto Rico, competed and won gold medals under the U.S. flag. So we talk a little bit about the choice that Puerto Rican athletes uh, are asked to make in terms of what country they would like to represent. And what's become clear is that this sporting event and Monica Puig's historic gold is, is a way in which we can talk about broader issues about Puerto Rico and its status as a commonwealth. Uh, we talk about lighter subjects as well, including doubles, which we all like recreationally, but probably don't get enough play on the professional level. Anyway, let's bring her in now. Coming to us from suburban Connecticut, Gigi Fernandez. I was thinking, you and I have talked about doing this for a while, and I'm glad we made it happen. And we have what we call a news peg this week, a news Puig, yes. as it were, <laughs> um, with uh, with Monica Puig winning gold, and your name mm -hmm. was was bandied about quite a lot. I mean, just start from what 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 were your thoughts on Saturday? What what was that like watching for you? Oh, it was so emotional. It was so exciting. Um, you know, I'm born and raised in Puerto Rico, so I, too, like every other Puerto Rican, wanted to hear La Boricena, um at the Olympics. 
And um, I just was so excited when she won, and I was jumping up and down and screaming like a crazy person, <laughs> and um, just really happy to to be able to hear our national anthem song of the Olympics. It was just very special, and um, you know, it was special when I was on the podium, and it was the uh, American anthem. Um, you know, we were Puerto Ricans are all U.S. citizens, so it's a really uh, tough, tough situation, and. Um, Culturally speaking, it's like we don't really know what we are. What are we? Are we Puerto Rican? Are we American? But um, but all that sort of was put aside on Saturday, and we all celebrated her victory, and it was a really special day in, in sports for Puerto Rico. And and you know her personally. I mean, this this is someone she's she cited you as a mentor. I mean, you you have a relationship with with Monica as well. Yes, um, I've been following her career since she was twelve. Um, her mother and my sister played tennis together in Puerto Rico. The Puerto Rican tennis community is very, very small. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've, I've watched her play at the Open every year. And, um, you know, I tweet with her and we text and, you know, give her some advice, um, just kind of lose advice here and there. And I'm just really, really happy for her. And I think it's amazing what she did and how she took the energy of this country and put it in, you know, in her back and just, it just lifted her and um, she played, I mean, I always knew she had the potential. She was top five junior in the world, top three junior in the world. So she had the, the ability and the potential. So she just, you know, be at this, this uh, moment and hopefully she turns that into, you know, on the tour and how does she play playing for herself and how she transitioned from playing so amazingly when she's playing for the country and to now, how does she recreate that, game when she's playing for herself so that'll be interesting to follow um at the u.s open yeah i was gonna say what what i mean we can talk about sort of puerto rico and greater meaning in a second but i think that part of the story is just here was a player that we we'd all had heard about for years and years who i think she played 80 wta events and had only won one of them and yet in rio that was just a really comprehensive i mean she she beat the best players. She beat righties. She beat, beat lefties. She yeah. had more more winners than Kerber. And the I mean, I thought that was really yeah. a great tennis display. Apart and from she everything beat him else, soundly. I mean, she beat Muguruza one and one. And one. Exactly. Yeah, I don't say how bad Muguruza is playing. Still one and one is one and one, right? So um, it it was just you know again she, we know, always have known that she had the talent and that she had the game and she had Kerber four one in the third two years ago to beat her. So she had, she's been knocking on the door. She just hasn't been able to close the door. Um, and this time she, she did because, you know, when you play for your country and for people who have not played for the country, they don't know, but I've played for my country and people who play for the country, like you, you, it's just a different feeling. Like you can't, it's such a responsibility to play for your country. Like you can't act out, you can't have negative thoughts. You can't dwell on anything. You can't, like you don't dare misbehave. Um, you know, and I play my best tennis every time I was in the United States because I was in such good behavior. And, and so that was Monica. Like, she would not let her thoughts get in the way of her win, which is what she has done in the past. In the past, she would just get way ahead of herself in matches and just mentally crumble. And this time, she just wouldn't allow that to happen because it was she was playing for Puerto Rico. And it was, there was so much history to this. And there's so much, you know, tw- it was 25 years ago that I went to represent the United States and people are still upset about it. So, I mean, she carried this wave of negativity or whatever you want to call it that came out of um, the situation in the last week and just 
used it, used it to her advantage, and it was it was spectacular. I was so happy to see her win. I mean, did you have any sense of all this talk about, hey, there's this is the first gold for Puerto Rico, this is the first female athlete to win any kind of medal for Puerto Rico? Did you have any sense of like, uh, yoo-hoo, actually, uh, I may not have played, <laughs> I may not have played under the Puerto Rican flag, oh, but I'm a Puerto God. Rican athlete. Well, I mean, the thing that was really most upsetting to me, and it was has been a tough week for me. It's probably the worst week I've had since my kids were in the NICU, but like by far. Um, just with the hate. I mean, I have never been called so many names and people wanting me to die. And, you know, oh. just like every foul name in the book that you can imagine was, was um, expressed to me via Twitter. And, you know, what was upsetting again is that, you know, I did represent Puerto Rico and I, and very proudly, I carried the Puerto Rican flag into the 1983 Pan Am Games. I won two silver medals in the Pan Am Games and a bronze and I won gold medals in the Central American Games. I even represented Puerto Rico in the Olympics in 1984. So I did for Puerto Rico everything I could. And then and then when it came time to, okay, do I want to win a medal or do I just want to keep representing? And as an athlete and as a top athlete, I was number one in the world in doubles when I made the decision. Right. Like I really did not have a partner. And you can't play doubles without a partner. You know, <laughs> I so heard that. The people who understand go, okay, well, of course he's going to go play for the United States and try to win a medal. But then there's like the people who are really passionate about Puerto Rico and they just can't get around it and, um, you know, and those are the people that are the most vocal, the, the pro-independence um, minority. And, but they're very vocal about it, very passionate about Puerto Rico being independent. And, and you know, and they just came out in thrones and it was just a horrible week. But, um, but you know, it is what it is. And now it's over because now we have a gold medal and we can move on. <laughs> Puerto Rico has a gold medal. I, I do feel like this had the, the sort of unintended consequence of highlighting this, I'll use a tennis term, this no man's land that Puerto Rico is in. And people are asking me questions, you know, I don't understand, like they serve in the military, but do they pay taxes and do they vote and they're a commonwealth? And I, I didn't realize the extent to which this is an ambiguous situation. When, when people say to you, where does Puerto Rico sort of fit into this? What's its relationship vis-a-vis the United States? How do you even, how do you answer that question? Well, it's really interesting because the fact that Puerto Rico has sports sovereignty is a little bit, to me, just perpetuates the cultural identity crisis that Puerto Ricans face. Because every four years, we are just full of you know, pride and Puerto Ricanism, for lack of a better term. Um, but the fact is that we are a colony of the United States, and um, you know, we, we are... Basically, we're not ruled by the United States. We have our own governor, but we have federal aid. We have Medicaid. We pay Social Security. We um, we are benefit from a lot of funding from the U.S. government, which keeps us not being a third world country. You know, if we, we didn't have the funding from the U.S. Uh, from you know from the United States, we would we would be in really worse financial. Um, we would be in a worse financial situation that we are now. So we really depend on the United States for for a lot of of services. Um, but yet we have this sports identity. So I don't know. I mean, it's been like this for, uh, 70, 70, 80 years. So I don't know that it's going to change anytime soon, but, uh, it sure does create conf- confusion, you know, for, and uh, cultural identity issues for people like myself. I, so, I mean, I feel like too, I mean, there, there are political parties in Puerto Rico that are sort of based on different, 
philosophies here. So it, it's, it sounds as though it's, it's a real sort of identity crisis that goes a lot deeper than athletes choosing which countries to represent. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's three basic parties. There's a pro-statehood party. There's a party that wants to remain how we are, which is the Commonwealth. And those are the two main parties. And then there's the party, the pro-independence party, and they're the minority. I mean, probably less than 5% of Puerto Ricans want independence. But they're the ones that are the loudest and the most vocal and the ones that really came out and just, you know, have been slamming me for the last 25 years for going to represent the United States. And, um, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the people who also the, want to state a, a commonwealth have that tendency of, you know, not being so happy when Puerto Ricans leave um, to go to the United States. And, and again, you know, to me, like the whole thing started because I. I question whether we have a double standard in Puerto Rico because it's not okay for me to go represent the United States or for other athletes from Puerto Rico to develop themselves in the United States, but it's okay for us to bring people in. And and the guy who carried the flag is Dominican, and half our basketball team is from the from the Bronx and from the United States and from you know sort of not they're not born and bred Puerto Ricans, so that's okay. But it's not okay for me to go win the medal. So that's called double standard and. And it just, it just went viral, that quote, unfortunately for me. And, and then it just kind of grew and, and got continued to get worse as, as Monica got, you know, continued to improve. So, and continue to win her masters. But, but now again, like I said before, it's, it's hopefully it, we can all put it to rest and we can all just move on from it because right. we're going to have the gold medal. Hey everyone, quick break. The Olympics have been a fantastic spectacle. The tennis event obviously ended Sunday. Andy Murray took gold in men's singles, the first player to defend a gold medal in singles. Great moment for him. Monica Puig took home Puerto Rico's first ever gold medal by winning women's singles. Here at Sports Illustrated, we have our own gold medal team, as it were. In the podcast realm, Alex Abnos and Mitch Goldich, two young bucks, are staying up all night in the middle of the night, and they are delivering fresh episodes for your morning commute capping all the action from Rio. These guys have been doing a tremendous job. I know I've talked about them online and on Twitter, encouraged you to listen, but uh, go back, listen to past episodes. You don't want to miss this. Use your favorite podcast app, search for Sports Illustrated at the Games, or visit si.com slash Olympics for all of our coverage from Rio. How did, um, you know, it, it occurred to me, I mean, you know, Monica was this well-regarded junior. I, mean, I, I remember, I think, Chrissy, that uh, Chris Everett was talking about her you know, when, she, when yeah. she was a teenager, how how did you? Um, I mean, I don't I don't remember you as as a highly regarded. How did, how did you sort of come into prominence? I mean, I know I know you went to yeah, I was, to Clemson. I was but... definitely yeah, yeah, I was definitely not a highly regarded. I was highly regarded junior in Puerto Rico. Like I had you know from the time I was born or or I first picked up a rocket when I was three, you could people could tell that I had talent and that I was going to be good someday. Like of course I had no role models and no one to follow and say I want to be like her. So it really took me until I went to college and I was 18 and I played junior tennis at, in Puerto Rico and Puerto, the Puerto Rican Tennis Association is part of the United States Tennis Association. So again, another confusing thing. So as a Puerto Rican, I was able to play nationals, USDA nationals. So I would go in the summers and you know take my spot in the nationals and a coach found me and gave me a, a scholarship. So the first time that I went, the, the first time in my life that I really practiced tennis on a daily basis and worked on cross-court forehands and cross-court backhands and really was intense about my tennis was when I went to college when I was already 18. So, um, so that's, that's sort of, you know, my path, but you know, with Monica, like the, 
she, harmonica has been hard work. I mean, hard work and determination. Like we, she had a good junior career and, you know, and I've known all along and a lot of people have known that she had the potential, but, but to realize it this way, um, was no, I don't think anybody was expecting this. I mean, I had pointed, pointed her out to Pat, both Patrick, Patrick and Mary Jo when she was uh, 15. I was like, you got to look out for this one because she's Puerto Rican. But, you know, if you're going to grab her, you better grab her now. And she, um, she, and but, the, I mean, the yeah. option was hers, right? What's that? It, it, the, the option is obviously the, the athletes. I mean, she, yeah, she yeah, could have said. Yeah. No, but they, they, the, the USDA never thought that she would, she would be good enough to pursue her. Yeah, because they, she certainly could have used the help, you know, and the thing that when the Puerto Rican athletes that are good, that what's, what's so enticing too about the USDA, so the USDA has the resources um, and the coaches to help them, you know, and we have a lot of, um, I mean, I'm sure there's other Monica, Monica tweaks out there that, that could, could have used the help. I mean, she, you know, didn't, didn't need it. Her parents um, could afford for her to, develop and she didn't need the help from the USDA. Um, but, um, you know, and I don't know, like, I know we, I know we are part, Puerto Ricans are part of the USDA, so they should help. But then when the USDA helps the Puerto Ricans, then they go play for Puerto Rico. So now, so again, it's like, how do you decide what's right and who to help and who not to help and who's going to go play for Puerto Rico, who's going to keep playing for the United States? Um, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy for to have the option. Yeah, I mean, these are you know these these are broader political and, and economic issues through the prism of sports. But it, but it also makes you think. I mean, I think you raise a good point. I don't I don't think there's another Puerto Rican on the WTA rankings. I, mean, I think she's the only no li- literally yeah, the no. only professional tennis player from no. Puerto Rico right now. No, um, it's her, and that's it. And that was the case when I was playing. So so. You know, people telling me, oh, you could have been the first gold medal. It's like, again, like, you know, my ranking was higher than hers. And maybe this is the difference because my ranking was seven. My ranking was high 17 in the world. So, and hers is 33. So they're saying, well, she could have won the gold. She won the gold medal ranked 33. How could you not have won the gold? Well, the difference was that I didn't think I could. Right. <laughs> because yeah. at the time there was, you know, I was, I had never been the top 10 player in my life. Monica thought she could. So. But I knew that I would win, that I had a really good chance of winning a gold medal in doubles because I was number one in the world. So, yeah. So, but but yeah, it's up to the athlete to to decide. But it's such a weird choice. I mean, it's such it's so odd to even have the choice because you're born from where you're born and you don't change your nationality um, on a whim. You know, which is basically what we have to ask Puerto Ricans. Do you want to, do you have to pick what your nationality is when you think about that. It's, it's yeah, just exactly. like a really right. strange thing. And, you know, I mean, I think we also, we don't have to dwell on this, but I, I don't think, she, she wouldn't have made the team if she had. No, she wouldn't have been on the Olympics because we already had three, you know, we have, um, yeah, four. of course, and I think, Serena and Madison, and there's probably Slim three Stevens, more ranked ahead of her. Yeah. I, I think well, even Coco Vandway so. at, Coco Vandway at the time, but no. anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, she would have made the team, so. What, what do you, last question on this. I she mean, made the right choice. Yeah, exactly. But, but I think, you know, everybody says like, um, you know, where there's a lot of talk about how significant this is for Puerto Rico and what, I mean, in practical terms, what do you, what do you suspect, what's going to change, what do you suspect is going to change in her life? I mean, is this, I mean, are there going to oh, be Monica Puig postage stamp? I mean, what, what sort of the, pra- pragmatically, what do you think the significance of this is in Puerto Rico? Well, for one, she'll probably make millions on this gold medal, um, for sure. I mean, she's, that just it's just elevated her, her, 
status in the tennis world, I think, sure. um, put her in a different echelon than she was before. Um, as far as Puerto Rico goes, she was already a national hero. So, but now, I mean, she's the first Puerto Rican to win a gold medal in the Olympics. I mean, she goes down in history as, you know, like she'll be remembered for generations and like to, uh, you know, up, up there with Roberto Clemente. Yeah, it was a, it was a crew. So, is, that, is that right? You think, uh, oh, you think that's, that's that? Yeah. I mean, I think she will even, even, that, even more than, even though I'm in the tennis hall of fame, I have, you know, like when there was, uh, at the end of last, at the end of the century, they did a, um, a, a top 50 Puerto Ricans, you know, and, and sports. And I wasn't on the list and I'm like, wait a second. Like, you weren't on How the list. How can I oh, not oh. be on the list? Oh, I was not on the list. If it makes you feel better, I, I saw a different I, list that, that had you as uh, you, as one of the top five female. Uh, all right. I, I saw a different list you were on. But anyway, sorry. I just... No, I mean, but I, I should have been on the list because there, totally. can you name one Puerto Rican athlete in any sport other than tennis or than me and Monica? You got me. You couldn't because there are none. Right. <laughs> I mean, they're like people who have played in the Olympics and maybe not made the finals or made the finals. So there's people who have might've, you know, had okay careers in Puerto Rico, but no, nobody in the world stage. So I, I mean, I'm, I clearly Monica and I would be in that list, but now Monica will be in that list, but I still won't be on the list because I did it for the United States. And, and, you know, and that's just shouldn't be, I shouldn't, it should, you know, it just, it, it shouldn't be that way. And that's you know, part of what still obsessed to me, but, you know, I, I, I certainly still did a lot for Puerto Rico when I was, Younger and when I was, you know, like I said, I would won, you know, played Panama Games and won medals and and did represent the Olympics in in in, uh, in L.A. So. so there's so there's so there's so much encapsulated in this uh, in this gold medal. But all right, quick break to tell you about SI's college football podcast, like a college team with a new logo. This podcast has been rebranded, as it were. It's a Campus Rush podcast. It includes new co-host Andy Staples, who I sure. You know from our college football coverage and also from our barbecued coverage, he's also joined by Lindsey Schnell of the great city of Portland, Oregon. They'll have interviews, opinions, check-ins. They'll go to campus to keep listeners in touch with college football and college football's top stories. If Andy's involved, again, you can be assured that any audio will involve some excellent barbecue recommendations. Search for Campus Rush on your favorite podcast app or visit si.com podcast for our entire network here. I, I wanted I wanted to ask you, um, what what's your life like these days? I mean, what's what's it like being? What's my you, life? Yeah, I don't know. What to tell everyone what you? I mean, I think that. Oh. Uh, what I think people. I mean, I know the answer, well, but I'll I think people you. would be interesting to hear what you're up to these days. Well, I it's um, I am very active in the in the adult uh, recreational tennis community. Like I teach um, fifteen twenty hours, or about fifteen hours a week where I work at Chill Spears in Connecticut. But what I've been doing over the last year is really developing a way of teaching doubles that um, is based on my 17 years on tour, but more importantly on, you know, the last four years of coaching recreational players. So I've created this thing called the Gigi method of playing doubles. And, um, you know, I go around the country talking about it and teaching people at different clubs and, and it's going really well. I, um, I have, you know, interested in China for, for, for Gigi Fernandez teaching school and I'm trying to expand sort of that, that business. And, you know, I, obviously I'm a really good doubles player. I've been, 
I tell people that I was a better doubles, or like I knew more about doubles at six than most people will ever know in their lifetime. <laughs> I just was born with doubles instincts. Um, so that's what I do. I work with adults who, who um, want to get better at doubles and I have boot camps. I just had, I've had a couple of doubles boot camps where people come for a weekend and just learn all about doubles for myself. And now Dr. Mark Kovacs is one of the foremost fitness experts in the tennis in the tennis world, I'm sure you might have heard of them. Sure. Um, and and that's what I do. And I am a mom of seven-year-old twins, which keeps me very busy. I'm also very involved with the uh, USDA's Hispanic Engagement uh, um, Initiative that Katrina has. One of the her top three initiatives as the President of the United States was to increase participation among Hispanics. So um, I'm part of this task force, and I go to tournaments and do, and you know participate in kids days for where we bring in Hispanic kids from the community and introduce them to tennis for the first time. So I've done that, you know, six or seven of those. I'm also speak. I'm a speaker. Also, I am speaking at PNG next month and at Wells Fargo uh, advisors later in October. So, so that's what I do. I mean, I, one year ago, I decided that my goal in life was to be my, was to share my knowledge of doubles and, I've been really passionate about that and, and I'll continue to do that for, you know, a few more years as long as I continue to enjoy it. I'll keep sharing my knowledge. As long as people want to hear about it, I'll, I'll, I'll keep sharing. And so far people have been, have taken to it really well. So sure they do. What, what are, uh, give us like some of the organizing principles of the GG method. Cause I feel, I feel, I feel like well, you know, so, everyone plays doubles. Say that again. I, I feel like doubles is like I mean you you go to events and sometimes it feels like the uh, you know sometimes it, it feels like the stepchild event, but you recreationally yes, you go you drive by courts and every court has four people. Right, exactly. Well, well, see what happens is that we're all taught how to play singles, right? Unless you grow up with kids, no one ever teaches you how to play doubles for the most part. So then you know these kids go to college or they they make it on the tour, they don't make it on the tour, and then they decide that they want to have a career in sports, but they're not going to be you know, professionals. So they turn to teachers and they go teach adults. And now when you go teach adults, what do adults play? They all play doubles. Like 85% of tennis, tennis at clubs is doubles, not singles. So it's the problem is our instructors don't know how to teach doubles unless they've, you know, had a lot of either played themselves doubles or had, you know, some education. And we, I feel like we do a disservice to our adult community because a lot of what we teach is, is not correct. And um, so the premise of the Gigi method is there's, you know, I created, I, I sort of broke down those into five steps. And the first step is positioning. You have to be positioned in the right place. Otherwise you get passed and, you know, not hit the right shot. Right. So positioning is the first thing. Then you got to cover the right shot. Once what, what's your opponent hitting and what do you, who covers what, then there's um, the serve, right. And you got to hold your serve. Um, so what are, how are you going to control the serve? What are different things you can do? Then there's breaking serve. You got to hit the return. What are your options on the return? And then the fifth step is shot selection. So once you've, uh, once you're positioned in the right place, you know what to cover, you hit the first serve and the return has gone in, then shot selection comes to play. And you're, you're ever, in, you're only ever in three formations and doubles, either two up, two back, or one up, one back. And you and your opponents are in, the, in one of those formations. So based on those formations, what's the high percentage play? First of all, what are the advantageous formations and which ones should you, should you be trying to get into and which ones should you avoid? And it, once you're in that formation, what 
what should you be doing? Like what's high percentage? And I solely teach high percentage doubles and, um, and you know, and then all the five steps circle around competing. And once you're doing all those things and you got to compete and how are you mentally tough and, and, you know, what things can you do to make sure that you're mentally ready for your matches? And, um, so I go around talking about it and lecturing on it and, um, and then teaching people about it. And, you know, as long as people keep wanting to hear it, I'll keep doing it. Um, and it's, you know, my website is tennis.com. We're just going through a rebranding process, but um, we have boot camps, we have clinics, we have experiences, which are full day, full day events, up to one day of what I just told you about. Um, and then I have um, some lessons in there people can download, and there's a tennis quiz. So if you think you know doubles, go take this tennis quiz and see how good you, how well you do. And so I'm trying to engage this community in, um, you know, in, in just sharing and I want to just keep sharing what I know about doubles. So that's great. We'll, uh, we'll link, we'll link the site. If, if I'm, if I'm a recreational player and I'm watching tennis channel or I go to the U S open in, in a few weeks, give us a couple doubles players that you would advise watching who sort of strategically, who, who, what doubles players out there are, are worth, are worth watching for their tactics. That's a great question. Well, I mean, the Brian brothers are, they play textbook doubles and you know if you can relate to um well nobody can never mind take talk about relate because who's going to relate to like the best team in the history in the history of the game right but they're just great great to watch and great fun to watch because they like i said they play strategically high percentage and sound doubles they know you know you see that you, they're constantly moving you know they're um intercepting balls of the net they're you know they're not playing so much one-on-one back which which I think is the worst thing that ever happened to doubles. But, oh, really? You know, it, and I get, well, I mean, it works at the professional level because of the ground strokes and because of how much spin everybody puts on the ball. And, right. and, 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 you know, when I was playing two up, like even after I retired, two up still worked against one up one back because the, of this, you know, now it's not the, the power. There's power in my generation, but now there's power and spin. And, you know, constantly hitting volleys from below the level of the net, even if you're, you know, four feet away from the net, it, they, the baseline is able to hit the ball down at your feet. So that's why, to me, that's why it's become so difficult for two volleyers to be at the net. It's not that they have bad volleys, it's that they're constantly hitting balls from below the level of the net. And in my era, the technology didn't allow for that. It right. was really hard to constantly hit the ball down. So now with recreational players, they see that, they see, oh, well, the players are playing one up, one back, and they think, oh, I should do the same thing wrong because the difference is they don't have those ground strokes and they don't have the balls that are dipping so recreational players still need to get to the net and and you know they that level of tennis is like tennis was 25 30 years ago where getting to the net is what wins tennis at the recreational level so for all the recreational tennis players listening when you go watch the pros don't think that you have to do what they're doing as far as you know their formations goes because again, getting to the net still wins doubles matches or doubles points. Let me ask you another at the recreational level. Um, we're we're gonna uh, we're gonna link your site too. Um, okay. So I want so you you know you and I talked about this a few years ago I think and I and you know we were just we were just bullshit. I mean it wasn't on the record or anything. But um, t- tell me a little bit about the transition you went through from athlete to former mm-hmm. athlete. Because I, th- I think you had some really yeah. interesting insights, and then, and uh, yeah, and I and I think the fact yeah. too that your spouse is a former athlete too really is interesting, also. But 
anyway, t- t- take it away. T- tell me, let's yeah, try and reprise so, that. So I think, I mean, I think people underrate how difficult retiring is. I mean, I was 33 when I retired. I was like 117 grand slams. I didn't feel like winning another one would change my life. And I was a little bit burned out, but it was more like, I think I'd already done anything, anything I could do. So I decided to retire. And so one day I wake up and the thing that I've been doing for the last, you know, 30 years of my life is not available to me. It's done. Like I don't have to do it anymore. So it was really hard. I mean, it was um, a little bit depressing at first. I think I went through a little period of depression. Um, and then I had these really strange experiences around Grand Slams because my, my, for the last 15 years, I've been getting so geared up for Grand Slams. Like my body almost knew that the Grand Slam was coming and I would start to like get wound up and get, you know, mentally and emotionally ready for the Grand Slam. But then the Grand Slam would come and I wasn't playing and it was like, what's going on? So I had a horrible time during the first few Grand Slams. Um, And then the other part of that is that you are, I, I particularly was just really wanted nothing to do with tennis. I didn't want to be identified as tennis player. I didn't want I didn't want to be. I didn't want my identity to be G Fans a tennis player. So I spent a lot of years trying to be something other than G Fans tennis player. You know, I started some businesses and I did real estate and I, you know, I did a lot of crazy things that I can't even remember right now. But it seemed like I was always trying to find the next thing that was going to create that excitement that I had about tennis and that passion. Um, and you know, ten about ten years into my retirement, I realized what am I doing? Like, <laughs> I mean, the fact is that I'm always going to be G fan as a tennis player, even if I become the mom or the entrepreneur or the other, the business woman, doesn't matter. I'm always going to be the tennis player. So I needed to go back and embrace my identity, embrace that and embrace tennis. And so I decided to just do that and embrace it and started to give back a little bit more and started to um, just enjoy being on the court and you know I, of course I've loved tennis I, it's been my whole life and I went through a period where I didn't really like it I didn't want nothing to do with it and for the last five years you know people ask me how are you coaching recreational tennis tennis players like don't they stink I'm like well compared to pros they stink but they still they're they don't stink if compared to the other people of their level right, right. I mean there's three fives that are good three fives and there's that three five so if you're teaching a three five you want to make them a better three five um, if you're teaching a four, oh, you want to make it a better four, oh, and they do improve. So, so you know, finding that passion again for the game really, really, you know, saved me. Um, and I mean, I, at least now I really, you know, obviously love what I do, and I love talking about tennis. And um, but yeah, at first it was definitely not easy. Your your kids, uh, tennis players, golfers, or none of the above? Yeah, or all <laughs> of the above? No, none of the above, right? I mean, they, they've been playing tennis since they were three, but they don't really like it. So I don't push them. I mean, they, what I said to them was like, I don't care if you like it or not, but you have to have good strokes. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to look like you're good, even if you're not. So, yeah, and they're taking a couple of golf lessons from Jane and a couple of tennis lessons. I don't give them tennis lessons. I, I take tennis with Chelsea Peters. What's your, um, so so. Your, your spouse, Jane Geddes, I don't know if people know, your, your spouse, Jane Geddes, is you know Hall of Fame caliber LPGA golfer. Um, right. I, I always thought you're, you're a few majors shy of Andre and Steffi, but not, not that many. What, what's it like being married to uh, a, a, another former athlete? 
Um, well, I mean, what's really good about it is that we totally understand each other. You know, I think it's very difficult to understand the life of an athlete if you're not an athlete. I mean, unless you're in, in that world, I mean, not that you have to be an athlete, but at least you have to be around that world. I mean, we, our world is not normal. I mean, we have lived our, we call it, we live our life in reverse. Like we had our best years in our twenties and thirties. And then we, the things that people want to do when they retire, like go play golf. And we did that in our thirties. <laughs> right. So, so we, you know, and now we're like retired and, raising kids, which is what you're supposed to be doing in your thirties. Right. So it's sort of been backwards and, um, you know, and for someone to to sort of appreciate and understand that, um, it takes another athlete. So, so in that sense, it's, it's good. We really understand each other. Well, I, I think it's really interesting when you're talking about this balance between, you know, I'm no longer a pro athlete. I need to evolve. I need to find other challenges, but also recognize like, this is essential. This is, a core of my identity and I can't pretend that I didn't win 17 grand slams and I'm in the hall of fame. I mean, it's, it sounds like a real right. balance between sort of living in the past versus reconciling the fact that, as you say, you can do a lot of amazing things and I'm sure you will, but people are still going to see your name and first and foremost, know you as the hall of fame tennis player. Well, but I think part of, and again, part of when you get older and you start thinking about your legacy and how you want to be remembered and, and, you know, again, I'm going to be remembered as Gigi Fernandez, the Hall of Famer, but I also, don't, I don't want to just be remembered as that. And, right. you know, when you get older, you start giving back is more important and helping others and helping kids and, you know, doing fundraisers and, you know, being part of the Hispanic engagement group and all the stuff that I'm doing in that regard. So, so yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're a Hall of Fame athlete in a sport, you're probably going to be remembered for that. <laughs> Right. So, so you might as well embrace it and, um, you know, and, and give back to me, but the advice to me is give back. I mean, it, it feels great to give back and, um, and tennis has been so great to me and has given me so much. And I've had some many amazing experiences through tennis and met some, some amazing people through tennis. And, um, you know, I just want to pass it on because I, I feel so blessed to have been so lucky to have tennis in my life. So. You mentioned um, you mentioned the Hispanic community, and it seems to me sort of d- yeah. d- doubles is this sort of I, I always think doubles is this under leveraged asset they would say in, in the corporate world. I mean, d- doubles is sort of this this growth area where maybe tennis could do more on the pro level. But I also feel like the Hispanic community as well um, is, is an area where the relationship with tennis could be a little firmer. I mean, wh- what do you think to to generalize mightily? What what can tennis do to be more appealing to this growing demographic in the U.S. Well, we, I mean, we started, we are starting to do it. Like the task force that was created um, two years ago when Katrina Adams became president, uh, which was tasked with increasing, increasing participation in more Hispanics in the United States. And last year we had a 12% increase in, in participation among Hispanics. So we're just getting the word out. Univision has been really active in promoting tennis and, um, you know, and there's, and letting people know that there's playing opportunities for them. There's a website called Tennis Para Todos which translates into tennis for all in Spanish. And they have, when you go there, there's all um, a database of places where you can go play tennis for free. There's free tennis everywhere. If you know where to find it, you have to know where to find it. Um, and if, if you have a, you know, a child who's talented and th- we're, th- we're going to find them, I mean, we're going to find talented kids and we're going to help them even if they don't have the means. So you don't have to be 
you know, uber wealthy these days to, to be a, a professional tennis player. I mean, the USDA really helps kids who, who demonstrate uh, athletic ability and talent and they'll, they'll put them through, through the paces. So, um, so hopefully we'll find we'll find the next Monica Puig in somewhere in uh, the United States, right? I was gonna say we won't uh, if if it's if it's Monica Puig, it's Monica Puig. But if there's if there's a player in the United States, that's great too. That's exactly where I was going. Yeah. Um, right. All right. We've 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 hit our half hour window. Um, are you you'll uh, you'll be at the U.S. Open? Yes, absolutely. I'm there almost every day. I'm, you know, I'm gonna watch Monica, and I have different things that I do at the Westside Club, and I have. People I'm taking and um, corporate events and whatnot. So I'll definitely be there. All right, this was great. You were uh, you were fantastic. I'm glad we did this. All right, thank you. We'll see you at the open. All right, take care. Bye, John. All right, thanks to our guest Gigi Fernandez. Good conversation. That is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Very interesting take on Monica Puig gold medal and also where Puerto Rico fits into things. Um, in the large scale and the small scale. Gigi's always a fun person to talk to, and i um, glad we were able to do this. Jamie Lasanti, as always, is our super extraordinary producer. She may well be handling duties next week when I'm uh, away for a few days before the U.S. Open, but uh, we'll have more about that later. Follow me on Twitter, at John underscore Wertheim. Subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, and your podcast app of choice. You can hear the whole network of SI podcasts at si.com slash podcast. All right. Have a good week, everyone. We'll talk to you before the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm.